Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we ask that as we spend time in your word, you would speak to us afresh in this story that is in many ways very, very familiar to us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open it again in new ways to us. And to that end, we ask that you would use the speaker and um, by the power of your spirit and open our hearts by the power of your spirit. Um, to teach, to renew, to refresh, to convict, to do all those things that are part of your work on this morning as we're gathered before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the prodigal son, probably all of you in some way or another could preach on this story. It's one of the most famous, if not the most famous, of Jesus' parables. So I'm inviting you to um, open your hearts afresh. If you haven't heard it before, it's a good one. And if you have heard it before, um, as we travel familiar ground, to listen in the Spirit for a fresh word from the Lord. It's been... um, It's been titled or known variously as the parable of the prodigal son. It's been also known as the parable of the loving father or the parable of the two sons, pretty infrequently known as the parable of the two sons. And we often forget in the wonder of this grace-filled parable that there actually are two sons because the prodigal tends to get the press. But it begins right at the outset, as Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. Now, both of these sons are blood-born. Both of these sons are seem, according to the parable, to be inheritors. One may get more than the other, being the firstborn, the older son, but nonetheless, both are inheritors, according to the story. They are, however, both very different in character. And we see that as the story unfolds. They provide for us a picture, a kind of metaphor for the scope of, of, for those who have come within the scope of the abundance of the grace of God and how those individuals who have come within that embrace respond to it and to the gift that's inherent in that embrace. And we kind of get a picture of that. What we don't hear in this story is the beginning of the chapter of Luke 15, where we hear two, where we encounter two um, audiences that are engaging in, or who are meeting Jesus and hearing this teacher and this teaching. So listen to this. This is at the beginning of the chapter, the opening verse. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. So with these two audiences in the back of our mind, we hear this story. The younger son becomes the focus of the story first. And he comes and asks for his portion of the inheritance. Now he's asking for his inheritance before his father is gone. It's in, it's in essence a way of saying, it's an insult, it's a way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because then, if you were dead, I could get my stuff, get the goods. It is a way of asking his dad to liquidate his assets so that he can have his portion, or at least liquidate the portion of his assets that are a part that are his particular portion. And so he and so we hear we see in the story that his father divides the property between his sons. Now, we don't know that he actually does this. We don't know that he sells the goats or the land or whatever that allows for his son to have the portion or he has the added insult of watching his son do that. But the story continues that the son takes what is his and eventually, a few days later, after it has been bestowed on him, leaves. Now, just the asking for this, just the insult itself, for a, for a Palestinian, Middle Eastern, patriarchal father would have been enough for him to toss his son out on his ear. He's living in a village. His father, the, the fact that he would have asked for this would have been known in that village. This insult would have been a public insult for his father. And yet his father acquiesces to it. Now, right at the very beginning, of this story. We have a beginning picture of the character of this father. He isn't the harsh picture. He isn't the distant, condemning picture. He is already bearing with his son's insult, with his son's sin. He's beginning to unfold a little bit before us his character. He's inviting us to watch him Jesus is inviting us to listen to what he's revealing to us of his own father, okay? Because friends, what we tend to do, I'm just gonna stop here for a second, what we tend to do with God the Father, and this is indeed a picture of God the Father in this parable. We tend to put on God the Father, impose upon him pictures of our, our ideas of human fathers, right? And those ideas are typically pretty broken. They're pretty broken. But you see, God is other. He gets to tell us who he is. And he wants us to disentangle our ideas of him, to step back and listen to him tell us who he is. And this parable is going to unfold that in some pretty powerful ways. It's already started. Everybody in the village probably expected him to disown his son, but he doesn't. So his son takes what is his and sets out. 
He's off to find more interesting and fun things than he could find in this community. And not just fun, riotous fun. He sense he's, he's off in reckless living. Has anybody been in the Greek system? <coughs> Anyhow, you can picture what reckless living looks like. I don't need to paint the picture for you. But pretty soon, it's all gone. The money's gone. Even the experiences are gone. It's all been short-lived, spent, and done. And he's in a whole lot of hurt and want. Because the circumstances that he doesn't control have now impinged upon him. There's a famine, and while he's been living high on the hog, he's now reduced to living with the hogs. And he's in a very star, sorry state. If you are a Jewish person, hanging out with pigs is a bad thing. Pigs are unclean. He is there herding or taking care of pigs, and he can't even get sustenance from their food. It's insufficient. And the, script, and the, the passage says he comes to his senses. Now, we don't get the complete inner conversation, but it's clear he's starting to think about how do I climb out of this mess? And we see some of his inner dialogue. He says, I can just go back to my father, but I can't claim sonship because I don't deserve that. There's some wisdom in that. He understands that reality. And we hear in this maybe some cunning. We don't exactly see his heart. Maybe just some pure wisdom. Maybe he's hoping, hope upon hope, that maybe there's a smidgen of mercy to be held out to him. He's wasted. He's wasted all that he's had. He has nothing to rely on when he goes back. He has no... He has no inheritance left. But maybe there's something left in relationship. And so he begins to make his way home. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, so to speak, his father and brother have continued their life. We don't get to know what's been going on. We don't know what's in the heart of the father, except that we do know that he is waiting for the sun when the sun appears on the horizon. S-O-N. When the sun appears on the horizon. We know that the sun comes back in a, a humbled state, ready to receive whatever he has coming to him, but we know too the state of the Father. And that's the powerful picture, friends. You see, the Father is waiting to go out to his Son. Before his Son, he has heard a thing from his Son. Before he has sensed any sense of repentance, he goes out. He sees him from a distance. He goes out. And he doesn't just go out. He runs, which is not a thing done by an elder in the community, by a, by a patriarchal father in the Middle East. 
He gathers his skirts, shows his ankles, and takes off running. This is a way he acts out of the abundance of his love. It's not something you do. It's a kind of self, it's a kind of humiliation of sorts, but done out of the abundance of his love. No father would be expected to do this. No elder would be expected to do this. And you remember here, he has not heard a thing from his son yet. This is what grace looks like. This is what mercy looks like. This is what love looks like. And he welcomes him back with open arms. Hugging him, his joy erupts. His worst case scenario has not come true. And his son comes into his arms ready to be acknowledging his unworthiness and his father's welcomes him as son. And the party and the party is set and the best clothes given. Now the story of the homecoming is what we often focus on. God, like the Father in his abundant love and work and, and, and mercy, welcomes us while we were still sinners in our lostness. Right? When we return, he greets us with, greets us with open arms. This is the outrageous nature of grace. Maybe we've heard this, this over and over again. Maybe we weren't the problem child. Maybe we didn't go off. And, 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 and spend all the money and our inheritance and party hardy and do all of that. Maybe we didn't, but we still need to hear this word of grace. We still need to hear that this is how our God operates, that this is the outrageous largesse of his mercy. Because there were two sons. And if the second son is what describes us, this same mercy and grace needs to be applied to us. You see, the older son has as much to teach us as the younger. He has a very different reaction than his father. When the word of the wayward son's return and his father's celebratory party comes to him, He's furious. He's furious. Now, why do you think he's angry? It's warm in here. So we're going to participate for a minute, and I need a drink of water. Why is he angry? Anyone? Anyone? Because he stayed home, and he was obedient, and he did all the right things. He did all the right things. And this kid screwed up. Why else would he be angry? Because his father gave a party for the disobedient son. His father gave a party. Whose portion of the inheritance did that party come out of? His portion of the inheritance. There's a lot of reasons he might have been angry. Envy? You pour out your love on this guy? You and I just kind of work day in and day out doing the stuff? 
And look how happy you are about this one, right? And so he is angry. And the way you see it so profoundly is in the language. When he asks a servant what this is about, the servant says, your brother is home and he's safe and it's great and we're celebrating. And when he talks, when the older son talks to his father, he says, your son, and he distances himself from everything. And when his father tries to in, in, uh, invite him back into the family and back in, he says, your brother. But you see, this, this son is standing out. He's standing away. He's standing back. He's lost communion because, do you know, envy and bitterness and anger and joy don't mix. There's a dark place this, this brother has gone. It's a hard place. There's something that's dark and deep that has surfaced. You see, the father has shown to the, to, the, to the younger brother and to the older brother that grace is a family value. It's a household habit. But this older brother can't enter in. He can't enter in when it's extended to somebody else. But here, friends, you've got to realize the father has just been insulted by his older son in the same way he was insulted by the younger. He has thrown a party. Everyone is at the party but his older son, and don't you know everyone knows it? But what does he do? He goes out to his older son. He goes out to him. He offers grace to him. He seeks to draw him back in. And that is grace and mercy. You see, the older son is as lost as the younger son. It's just a different lostness. The older son is as in inwardly curved as the younger son. It's just a different form. He has his bitterness and envy and anger. The older sons might, or younger sons might have been selfishness and self-centeredness, but it's the same sort of lostness. It's just that the lost nature of the older brother is harder to identify because he, he might be identified, he might look on the outside like somebody who does the right thing, has the right theology, goes to church every Sunday, is praised by other people. He does community service, he attends church, he gives regularly, but when he doesn't seem to, when, when it doesn't seem that God casts an approving eye on him, that he's better than everyone else, he gets bitter and envious and angry. Friends, I, I have to say, I think the church has more old brothers. that are hurting as much, that are hurting. And I'm just going to confess 
There are probably older brothers, more older brothers in the clergy than younger brother. It's not wrong to want to do the right thing and to please God. But we don't control God's love for us by what we do. It is flowing to us all the time. It's abundant to us all the time. It's the nature of who he is as our, as our father. And here's the reality. The story doesn't have an ending. We don't get to see what happens to the younger brother. We pray he receives this grace and extends it to others. And we don't get to see what happens to the older brother. Because inherent in this story is an invitation. It's an invitation for all of us, whether we've gone wayward, whether we're hiding our wayward ways behind good behavior, whether we're doing the, doing the right things and hoping that God will notice. Whether all in all, deep down, each and every one of us are wondering, does he really love me? The parable says, he has come to all of us, initiated that movement towards us, and he's done it in a cross. We all are held out in Corinthians, the option of being new creations free from the darkness of resentment and fear that we are unloved or we're not good enough or not worth enough. That at that cross, we can be released from that darkness into his light. That at that cross, we can have guilt and shame of the things done and left undone, removed, because he's already borne those things. At that cross, the empty props of pride and self-righteousness can be laid down and humility and love picked up. You see, the Father welcomes and embraces and forgives and makes us new and fresh and free. But it's not without a cost. And every week we come to a table and we remember that this embrace cost something, but that this embrace is ours, that this love is ours. Whether we're older brothers that are just kind of tired from trying hard 
and working hard. Or whether we're younger brothers who are tired from trying to serve ourselves or hide out or medicate our pain or whatever. We're just tired. Come to me, he says. Come to me. At the foot of the cross, you'll find your rest. And there I'll make you new. Amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in green, open the keys, fell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.